This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II radio podcast. Today we have The Road to War, the first episode of What Are We Fighting For, which was first broadcast on April 2nd, 1942. This series was produced by CBS and sponsored by the U.S. War Department. It was recorded live at military bases around the country, and this first episode was hosted by broadcasting legend Edward R. Murrow. The World War II radio podcast is a Brick Bickle Media production. If you'd like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are we fighting for? Tonight, from historic West Point, the Columbia Network starts a series of six broadcasts designed to help the War Department's campaign to make our soldiers not only the best equipped, but best informed fighting men in the entire world. In every camp in the United States, and in every outpost throughout the world, soldiers of our army are listening to this broadcast. Each Thursday night at this time, CBS will visit an army outpost to broadcast a talk by experts on causes Issues and Strategy of War. Edward R. Murrow is tonight's speaker, and the remaining participants in the six-week series will be Lee White, William L. Shira, Herbert Agar, Quentin Reynolds, and Sergeant York. Now Major General F.B. Wilby is about to introduce tonight's speaker to the 1,500 enlisted men, cadets, and officers gathered in the War Department Theater. General Wilby. gentlemen, officers and ladies of the post, enlisted men stationed here at West Point, we are happy to have with us at West Point tonight one of the great correspondents of the Second World War, Mr. Edward R. Morrow, chief of the European news staff of the Columbia Broadcasting System. Mr. Morrow, amid the hail of Nazi bombs on the British capital, gave us a vivid picture of that great wounded city weathering a new kind of war. Tonight, Mr. Morrow makes what may be his last public appearance in this country before returning to London. He speaks to you at West Point and by radio to American soldiers in all posts in this country and overseas. His subject, the road to war. Mr. Morrow.
General Wilby, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, this is rather frightening. Twice in the last ten minutes, someone has come out here and urged you to react in some way, to laugh or applaud, and you have almost been invited to sleep. If you do, it will be no new experience. Because during the nights of heavy raids in London, we worked from an underground studio, and it was not at all uncommon for our friends to come down and sleep quite comfortably while we did a broadcast to the United States. Well, gentlemen, we have 12 and a half minutes in which to traverse the highway to war. And since the beginnings of that highway go back some 25 years, we shall have to proceed at a rate of something like uh, two years per minute. We might begin this sorry tale with the League of Nations, or with Manchuria, or with Abyssinia, or the Rhineland, non-intervention in Spain, or the rape of Austria. Perhaps it would be better to start with the dismemberment of Czechoslovakia, or even the German-Russian pact. But it would be, I think, a mistake to place undue emphasis upon any single incident. There are certain landmarks that keep appearing and reappearing on this highway to war. If we look back at each crisis, each period of tension, we observe familiar terrain. This long and miserable road is littered with broken promises, irresolute policies, and the ghosts of timid statesmen who failed to recognize their enemies and who underestimated the strength of their opponents. Manchuria fell to the Japanese because there was no unity between London and Washington. The Italians overran Abyssinia because the democracies sought refuge in words and sanctions they failed to apply. Austria died without battle because she had committed the crime of being small. Czechoslovakia went down, betrayed by her friends. Men and women in the so-called democracies said the Germans were fanatics, and they failed to remember the strength of fanaticism. In France, in Britain, and in the United States, people laughed at the policy of guns instead of butter. We failed to understand that the Germans would use those guns to go and get the butter, our butter. Each time Hitler mouthed his last territorial demand, some people believed him, failing to realize that there is no truth and there can be no compromise with the totalitarian mind. All along this highway to war, we may see the faces of men and women who didn't want to be disturbed, who feared to make sacrifices and grave decisions. We were in a valley with few heroic men and few heroic measures. Men began to say, is there any conviction worth fighting for? We became experts at delay and evasion and self-delusion. We were turning out of our institutions of higher learning, though certainly not out of this institution, men and women with a sense of privilege rather than a sense of responsibility. The objective was to gain a higher standard of living at the cost of the society that had made possible the superior intellectual training. So far as the rest of the world was concerned, we were putting on a cheap veneer of easy cynicism. We were sitting back behind our oceans with a holier-than-thou expression saying, look at those miserable Europeans. What a mess they're making of things again. None of us can avoid some share of the blame for that sleep stumbling through a world where bestial brigands were seizing power and plotting our downfall. Their plans 
were poured into a mold labeled when war comes. Our plans were made on the basis of if war comes. There was never a time when the forces of decency and democracy could not have cried halt. But we feared and we failed to exercise our power. For we were men of little faith. Minds became dull and numbed as a result of repeated tales of horror and bloodletting. The democracies retreated from the world leadership and they were devoured one by one. I wandered about Europe and watched it happen. Most of you will remember the tales about how the German tanks and armored cars broke down and littered the highways leading to Vienna. How the German high command failed to reach its objective on schedule, even when they were occupying a country without resistance. Those stories were not true. Those of us who were there at the time knew they were false and said so. But the world preferred to believe the stories of obsolete equipment and inadequate planning. It was more comfortable, so. Refusal to admit German planning and German power made it possible to postpone unpleasant decisions and, and sacrifices. Those who told of the suicides and the beatings in Vienna on those days and nights were labeled warmongers. And after all, people said, weren't the Austrians Germans? And perhaps they wanted the Germans to come in. We failed to understand the scope of the plan and the ruthlessness of the men who were executing it. When Czechoslovakia was cramped in the gutter, most of us preferred to pass by on the other side of the road. Let no one say that Mr. Chamberlain failed in those days to act in accordance with the wishes of the majority. The British didn't want war, and he avoided it. When that announcement came out of Munich, there was a sigh of relief throughout the island. There were many expressions of regret at the price that would be paid by Czechoslovakia. But many of us failed to realize that Britain and France and Poland and the Low Countries and the United States would pay part of that price too. Payment was merely postponed, for there was no truth and there can be no compromise. In the years that followed Munich, the people of Britain came to realize that. And when on that sunny Sunday morning, Mr. Chamberlain, employing an understatement, said, it is evil things we will be fighting against, there was almost a sigh of relief went through that island from Land's End to John O'Groats. The recurring crises and periods of tension had passed and the issue had been joined and there would be no more retreating. At least, that's what we thought. But the war didn't come at once. The German armies crunched through Poland while friends of mine sat at that shortwave transmitter on a little wooded knoll outside Warsaw and asked for the help that never came. After the Germans had overrun the rich black earth of Poland, there was a lull. Nothing happened. Some called it a phony war, others a sitzkrieg. In Britain, there was darkness, but the war seemed almost remote. In the early spring, the Germans struck at Norway. And the British hastily assembled an expeditionary force, but Norway was lost. And I talked with many of those men who came back from Norway. Their story was the same as that of the men who later came back from Dunkirk from Greece and from Crete. They said, where were our aircraft? Why did our anti-aircraft guns arrive without predictors? Why was it on May 10th when the German armies came scything up through Belgium, there was not a single round of armor-piercing ammunition available to the British forces on the continent? It was because the planning had been inadequate and the estimate of the enemy had been incorrect.
After France fell, there came the Battle of Britain. And day after day, the German planes came over the island. And they came at night as well. I remember one morning talking with a sergeant from an anti-aircraft battery in Hyde Park. And the guns had been hot all night and the streets had been full of the raving roar of guns. And I asked him if he'd hit anything. And he said, spent all night shooting at nothing and hitting it every time. <laughs> even, even, even on the darkest days, the British retained their sense of humor and they fought this war in a fashion that was grim and gay. One night they knocked the glass out of about three blocks, an area of three blocks. And the next morning a little cockney with a scarf and a greasy cap was sweeping up the broken glass with a big push broom. A crowd gathered to watch him. He suddenly stopped and twirled that big broom in the air and said, Hitler's blinking elf-made. That's me. <laughs> that was on a morning when many men save Englishmen despaired of England's life. We, on the other hand, sent them least lend material. But it was a bitter thing to go down to a city on the morning after a raid, read a little box in the local paper, reporting that another 10 or 20,000 American workmen had gone out on strike. We were retreating from our responsibilities. We would all have understood our responsibilities. We'd had an opportunity to talk with the men who came to that island from Norway, from Holland, from France, men who literally sought liberty or death. Well, the first question they asked, and they were asking it before we entered this war, was what of the United States? because they knew that we were their sole source of promise and of hope and that the decisions would be ours. It is clear, I think, that we have traveled a highway from neutrality and indifference through cash and carry, lease lend, to Pearl Harbor. As a nation, we have argued and debated each step of the way. That's our tradition. Great nations do not go to war lightly, for wars are much easier to start than to stop, as our enemies will discover. The road to peace is obscured by the smoke of battle. Certainly it will be no easy road to travel. Men and nations may fall by the wayside. But in the end of the day, at the end of the road, we shall break the hearts of those people who plan to enslave us. This is a test of will. Our enemies have won great victories. And these victories have been due not alone to a superiority in tanks, aircraft, and equipment. They have been stronger in arms because they were stronger in heart. Our faith must be greater than their faith. We shall reach the end of this highway, not only as a result of superior firepower, but as a result of greater... That was Edward R. Murrow speaking to officers, cadets, and soldiers at West Point on the road to war. First in a series of six from army camps on What Are We Fighting For? American soldiers in every corner of the globe are listening to this broadcast. Next Thursday at this same time, 6.15 p.m. Eastern War Time, Lee White will be heard from Fort George, Meade, Maryland, on the war to date. John Tillman speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.